Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present civil rights attorney Aaron Carter Bates, who discusses the federal lawsuit he recently filed on behalf of the Lawyers Matter Task Force, which challenges the constitutionality of Florida's new anti-riot law. Cecil Roberts, the longtime president of the United Mine Workers of America, who talks about his union's position on making the transition from coal mining to clean energy jobs. And Bo Schuff, executive director of the group DC Vote, who assesses the current momentum behind the decades-long campaign to make Washington, D.C. the nation's 51st state. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. For the first time in its 40-year history, the German Green Party is center stage in Germany's election set for late September. The Greens' chancellor candidate, 40-year-old Annalena Baerbach, is the only woman in the race to succeed Angela Merkel, who is retiring after 16 years in power. Meanwhile, the dominant center-right coalition of the Christian Democrats and the Bavaria-based Christian Social Union is fractured and losing support. A recent poll put the Greens in first place, seven points ahead of the Conservative Party alliance, followed by the Social Democrats and far-right alternative for Germany. Baerbach, who comes out of the Greens' pragmatic wing, is running on a 137-page party platform which pledges a green transformation in Germany's export-driven economy, a quick phase-out of coal, and a wealth tax to pay for it. The Greens were junior coalition partners with the center-left Social Democrats from 1998 to 2005. Today, they serve in coalition governments in 11 states, working with each of Germany's main parties, except for the hard-right alternative for Germany. After 16 years of Angela Merkel, the Greens are offering a break from the status quo on the economy, climate change, and social policy. The Social Democrats, one of Germany's two major parties, has been weakened in recent years by being a reliable junior coalition partner with Merkel and her conservative bloc. Thirty years after the rise of Kurdish nationalism across the Middle East, prospects for Kurdish autonomy remains dim. Four years ago, police arrested Salahattin Demirtash, head of the People's Democratic Party, the strongest political voice for Turkey's Kurdish population. Like hundreds of other Kurdish politicians and activists, he remains behind bars on trumped-up charges under Turkey's authoritarian leader, President Erdogan. Turkey complained when the United States backed Kurdish forces that ousted ISIS extremists in Syria. The Kurdish Workers' Party then called for autonomy for Kurdish-majority cities in southeast Turkey, but were quickly crushed by the Turkish army, which deployed tanks and artillery, killing some 3,000 people, including hundreds of civilians. Erdogan later arrested dozens of Kurdish mayors elected by the People's Democratic Party. In northeast Syria, Kurds who expelled ISIS forces once called their enclave Rojava, Kurdish for land of the setting sun, but now call it an autonomous zone in recognition of Turkish threats, a desire for autonomy rather than outright independence. 
The COVID pandemic has exposed the dark side of the nursing home industry, which has been pressured by private equity firms to slash costs and cut staffing, which led to the deaths of tens of thousands of senior citizens over the last year. Genesis Healthcare, the largest nursing home chain in America with 350 facilities, is now in the hands of New York financier Joel Landau, who has a history of conning his way into nursing home takeovers, then evicting the patients and flipping the real estate to luxury condo developers to make major profits. During the pandemic, 2,800 patients and workers died at Genesis Homes after contracting COVID. Despite an infusion of funds from the Federal CARES Act, patient care continued to decline and the company was near bankruptcy. In December, after the Genesis CEO was fired, talks began with an equity firm run by Landau, the man who made big profits with the aid of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's friend and lobbyist, Jeffrey A. Sachs. In 2018, Cuomo, facing a contested Democratic primary election, received a $1 million contribution from a powerful healthcare industry group. Two years later, Cuomo signed legislation that shielded hospital and nursing home executives from the threat of lawsuits stemming from the coronavirus outbreak. Then, Cuomo's administration issued an order allowing nursing homes to readmit sick patients without testing them for COVID-19. Cuomo is now under investigation on allegations he intentionally undercounted the number of the state's nursing home deaths to avoid blame. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Combating Public Disorder Bill on April 19th, a law that the governor and state legislature say was written in response to mass protests against police brutality following the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last May. While the vast majority of anti-police violence protests last spring and summer were peaceful, Republicans in 34 states have proposed more than 80 measures similar to that adopted by Florida. Governor DeSantis boasts that the new law is the strongest anti-rioting pro-law enforcement measure in the country, but critics maintain that the measure infringes on free speech rights under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, as well as violating protections under the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. Among other provisions, Florida's anti-riot bill creates a new crime called mob intimidation, grants civil legal immunity to people who drive into and injure protesters blocking a road, allows authorities to hold arrested demonstrators from posting bail until their first court date, increases the charge for battery on a police officer during a riot, and requires cities to receive state approval before cutting police budgets. Your reporter spoke with civil rights attorney Aaron Carter-Bates, who talks about the federal lawsuit he recently filed on behalf of the group Lawyers Matter Task Force, which challenges the constitutionality of the new state law. In terms of the lawsuit and the claims we brought, the, the one that's getting the most coverage is obviously the violation of the First Amendment that we allege in the complaint. And that arises out of the fact that the bill 
bans without defining what it means. It bans quote-unquote riots and inciting a riot. And the problem with that is that under the bill, what a riot is is, is so vague um, that you're basically taking your own risk of felony prosecution in your own hands by stepping out and demonstrating on any dissenting opinion because you don't know if that will constitute a riot or not. Uh, not only that, but they've set arbitrary numbers uh, that constitute a peaceful demonstration uh, as opposed to a riot. For example, if Shannon and I go out and oppose uh, the low wages being paid to teachers, but then you join us uh, as the third under the law passed by Governor DeSantis, we would uh, be swept up in a felony prosecution as a result. So the, the bill is just so vague and so broad that it, it just serves to uh, ban and penalize protected speech. So that's the First Amendment violation. The Eighth Amendment violation is that if arrested under the bill, you're uh, barred bail until your first appearance, which is a clear violation of the Constitution. And then you're denied due process of law, which is a violation of the 14th Amendment. And, um, you know, I, I just want to point out for your listeners, and also something I don't think Floridians know, is that, you know, this governor of ours has been on TV uh, with Tucker Carlson on Fox News bragging about the fact that Florida has had no acts of violence during a demonstration that resulted in death or destroyed um, buildings. And he bragged about that fact. But then he turned around and uh, passed what he called the most, quote, pro-law enforcement bill in the country. And he passed that bill knowing that less restrictive bills had been struck down by federal courts in Virginia and South Dakota. So clearly this is just a a badge on the uh, vest of a political run for president in uh, 2024. I believe I read somewhere that uh, you are actually planning to hold a rally against this bill. But then, of course, the provisions in the law itself might jeopardize anyone who would attend such a rally. And that's a great way to make real and illustrate the fact that this new law signed by Governor DeSantis in Florida uh, chills free speech and dissent. Right. And, and, and that's, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, there's a, a specific vigil that was planned on the 24th of April last Saturday uh, to commemorate George Floyd and others who have lost their lives due to violations of civil rights. And Shannon and her organization came to me and said, hey, uh, we're going to go out and uh, provide funding and training around this vigil to make sure everybody's civil rights are protected. What do you think? And I told her, um, look, uh, I would not go out there because, A, you don't know uh, what you can or can't do. And as an attorney, if you get charged with a felony, you can lose your law license. So not a good idea. And then when I sat down and began to read the bill, I realized just how egregious the bill was. I mean, any lawyer at a law school could read the bill and determine the unconstitutionality of it uh, within five minutes. So I don't know um, how it made it out of committee in, in the Capitol, but it did. And hopefully the federal courts here in Orlando um, will be able to uh, put this bill where it belongs, which is in the trash. Aaron, there's precedent in knocking down some of these laws that restrict free speech and the right to dissent and protesting out there in America. Do you have a concern at all that the many judges appointed by Donald Trump, some of them viewed as unqualified by the ABA and many of them holding extremist views, that these precedents that 
protect free speech and dissent and protest may be in jeopardy, and it could come through Florida's law, and it could come from some of these other states that are also putting similar laws in place. Ironically, I, I, I think of that question because ironically, much like the uh, voter fraud allegations after the election, it was President Trump's appointees that summarily dismissed 40-plus lawsuits on the, uh, on the election fraud. And I think if you look at the less restrictive bills that were passed in Virginia and South Dakota that were struck down by federal courts, uh, if I'm not mistaken, both courts uh, were President Trump appointees. So even after 15 years, I still have some faith in the law. Uh, I do believe that, that most, if not all, federal judges would sit down and look at this law and say it very clearly violates the Constitution. So I'm, I'm a very pessimistic attorney, uh, and my clients will say that, but I, I feel pretty confident about the merits of this case. That was civil rights attorney Aaron Carter Bates, who recently filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of the Group Lawyers Matter Task Force, challenging the constitutionality of Florida's new anti-riot law. Learn more about the lawsuit and similar legislation being proposed by Republicans across the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Almost 900,000 miners labored in U.S. coal mines during peak employment in the 1920s. In 2019, that number was fewer than 53,000, the lowest on record according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The numbers plummeted due to automation and fell again when natural gas, mostly extracted through hydraulic fracking technology, outcompeted coal in price. Today, coal workers and their families, who depend on mining for their livelihoods, face an existential crisis. Cecil Roberts has been president of the United Mine Workers of America, the UMWA, for the past quarter century. He's from a coal mining family in southern West Virginia, in the heart of coal country. As his union's membership has decreased, he's fought hard, and mostly successfully, to protect health and retirement benefits for miners and their families. With the U.S. president now in office, who believes we must transition to a clean energy economy, Roberts has much to say about the crisis his members now face. Between the lines, Melinda, too, who spoke with him about his priorities, which include expanding coal jobs where possible, while also organizing workers in renewable energy sectors, like solar and wind. Roberts is a strong supporter of the Pro-Union Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or PRO-Act, which recently passed in the House of Representatives, believing it's essential to ensure his members make a living wage in whatever industry they work in. If people who have low-paying jobs currently want to join a union, generally speaking, their wages will be will improve, their benefit package will improve, because the union will bargain a better contract for them and better terms and conditions of employment for them. The president has made that part of his plan as moving forward that we need to pass the PRO Act that any jobs created with this new infrastructure moving forward plan of his would make any new jobs union jobs. Of course, the question about how, how does that happen, how does that come into being, is a little more difficult than just saying it. 
But if we pass to PRO Act in Congress and make it law, that's more realistic to expect that that could happen because most renewable jobs are uh, not union jobs and they're not at jobs that uh, pay a lot of money that would support a middle class lifestyle. And currently, as we all know, coal mining jobs have excellent wages and benefits attached to them. So our approach to this is let's bring jobs that are currently in uh, China and other locations around the world, jobs that used to be here in some instances, let's bring those jobs back Let's make them union jobs again, because most of the steel production jobs that were lost were union jobs. Most of the metallurgical coal mining jobs were union jobs. We lost those and we gave them, allowed somebody else to take jobs that were supporting the middle-class lifestyle for literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans. The new jobs that are being created around the world in the renewable industry that technology is being produced in China. Two thirds of solar panels and wind turbines are produced in China. We're importing that, supporting the Chinese economy, giving jobs to Chinese workers at very low pay and taking jobs away from hardworking unionized workers here in the United States. That's just something that we find appalling. One question is, you know, maintaining the jobs of coal workers and uh, people working in the natural gas industry. Both of those industries are extremely detrimental to the climate and, and to people's health, as I'm sure you know. We don't talk about black lung with coal mining, but even gas, you know, there's a lot of health impacts from that. So if you could organize workers to produce clean technology and clean energy and get the same pay and benefits that unionized workers in the UMWA have now to produce dirty energy and really hurt their own health and the health of their families. Where's the tipping point? Where do you draw the line in saying we really need to move to aggressively organizing these new newer jobs and then people can transition, they can either retire or transition into those jobs and we won't be promoting jobs that are really so toxic for people and, and the planet. People in Appalachia do not believe there's uh, such a thing as a just transition because quite frankly, this country's had 20 years to develop a way to save Appalachia and they've chosen not to do it. Go down to the bankruptcy judge and see what he gives you. If he doesn't give you anything, then that you're just gonna have to go find another way to make a living. My main goal here is, uh, as we move forward is to make sure the members that I represent have ability to have a, a middle-class lifestyle with, with a good paying job, a safe jobs and health care and pensions and create additional coal mining jobs to the extent I can do that. And that can be done without harming the environment. There's not a worker in the world that has a good union job that would say, I'll give my job up and see what happens here. So there's a lot of uh, people suggesting, well, as soon as a, a coal miner gets laid off, there's gonna be a good union job for him to go to over, him or her to go to over here. That's not true right now. We will try to organize and we have tried to organize everybody, but we're, we're gonna protect these jobs we have. And I disagree with those who think that carbon capture and sequestration is, is, is not the route to go. That was Cecil Roberts, longtime president of the United Mine Workers of America. Learn more about the mine workers' position 
on making the transition to clean energy jobs by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For just the second time in U.S. history, the House of Representatives has approved a bill that would admit Washington, D.C. as the 51st state and give the nation's capital full representation in Congress. The Washington, D.C. Admissions Act passed the Democratic-led House on April 22nd along a party-line vote 216 to 208. The nation's capital is home to more than 689,000 residents, but the district has no elected voting representatives in either the House or U.S. Senate. Eleanor Holmes Norton, a long-serving Washington, D.C. delegate to the House, has no voting rights in the chamber. Advocates for statehood cite the fact that two states, Wyoming and Vermont, have fewer residents than Washington, D.C., but because they were granted statehood long ago, their people have voting representatives in Congress. Washington's second-class status was clearly seen in June 2020, when President Trump activated the D.C. National Guard against peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters, and again on January 6th, when he declined to activate the Guard to protect the Capitol from pro-Trump insurrectionists. The mayor of Washington, D.C., has no power over its own National Guard troops. Your reporter spoke with Bo Schuff. Executive Director of the group, D.C. Vote. Here he talks about the current momentum behind the decades-long campaign to make Washington, D.C. the nation's 51st state and the Senate filibuster, which is the major obstacle standing in the way of victory. I do go back a little bit to the one in June that we passed, June 26th of 2020. That was the first time in history, in 210 years of trying, that state had passed either chamber of the Congress. Uh, So it's absolutely a historic watershed moment, and it came about based on a coalition of organizations working to educate people across the country. And the reason I go back to that one, as in, and including the one that just occurred a week ago, is that the one built to get to the other. And now we have passed a bill through a Congress where we think both chambers of the Congress should be supportive of of D.C. statehood, based on the on the platform of the party in control and the statements of the leadership. We knew that last year that that was not going to happen. Uh, Former Majority Leader McConnell had called D.C. statehood full-bore socialism. Um, So to be able to come back and pass it again when it could also then pass the Senate is a different feeling, but still vitally important was that first one in in June of last year. Um, So we are at a watershed moment, and we're the farthest forward and the closest to achieving statehood that has ever occurred in 200 years of time. I did want to ask you about the civil rights issue, because... 46% of Washington, D.C.'s population is African-American. How much do you think that has to do with some of the objections and stonewalling uh, to achieve D.C. statehood? It absolutely absolutely has to do with race. There are are most definitely some people who have different objections, but it is a significant objection based on race. I know that not just out of hyperbole or out of, you know, uh, trying to whip up votes or get support. I know that because if we look through history at statehood admissions, especially the last four, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Hawaii, and Alaska, all of them 
had objections raised based on race, not always African-American, uh, clearly in Arizona, uh, based on, on Latino and, and Native American, same too in Alaska, uh, in Hawaii, it was about Asian Pacific Island uh, populations. But race has always come up in, in statehood admissions, all the way back to when, we, when there was a series of, of states that were admitted as either a free state or a slave state. Race obviously played a huge part in the development of the nation. And we're not only are we a 46% African-American jurisdiction, we're a majority uh, jurisdiction made up of persons of color. When we add in um, the, the Asian population and the Latino population, uh, the Caucasian population here in D.C. is a minority. Uh, and that absolutely plays a part. And we see it also in, um, in some of the solutions that are offered of, of, of partial measures for, um, you know, maybe we just get a senator or maybe our, voter, our representative just gets a vote. Um, there are other, you know, sort of these halfway, you could almost say three-fifths uh, of a solution offered on how do, you, how do you enfranchise a population that lives here in the district. But race is absolutely one of the key uh, objections raised by folks who don't want to see the district entered as a state. We're aware that there are 45 co-sponsors in the Senate for Washington, yep. D.C. statehood. And the five Democrats that are in question right now are Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Angus King of Maine. Uh, Kristen Cinema of Arizona, Mark Kelly of Arizona, and Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire. But without the abolition of the filibuster, it seems Washington, D.C.'s chance to be the 51st state may go nowhere. W what is your group doing right now to push for D.C. statehood, given these obstacles, uh, especially the filibuster? It's interesting because the party that presently controls the Senate ran on D.C. statehood. It was part of the platform. The president of the United States has voiced his support of statehood multiple times. So the expectation on the party in control right now is to get it done. And I think that's true of many of the priorities that they ran on. Uh, and they're going to need to figure out how they're going to get it done. I, I, I don't work in the Senate, and I don't work in the Senate parliamentarian's office, and I don't work in, in, in uh, Senator Schumer's office. And it's really up to the people who do to figure out how they're going to deliver on the promises that they made during their campaign. Our work is focused on making sure that more people know about D.C. statehood and about the interference in Congress, about the different policies that Congress has passed over the years that have killed Washingtonians. That's the work that we do, is we educate and we hope that those folks then translate that information to their elected officials so that people across the country start to recognize the injustice that happens here. And we've seen success. In six or so years ago, the polling in support of D.C. statehood was in the low, it was in the high 30s, low 40s in support. Um, about a year ago, right after the June uh, passage in the House, we started to see a plurality in support, but not quite a majority. Um, and just recently, the most recent poll had 54 percent of the American public in favor of D.C. statehood. And so we're going to do our best to make sure that most of the constituents around the country know that D.C. statehood is, is something important uh, for everybody. That was Bo Schuff executive director of the group, D.C. Vote. Learn more about the ongoing campaign to make Washington, D.C. the nation's 51st state by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBSU in Brockton, New York, Global Community Radio in Geneva, New York, KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.